1 John chapter 3. The last three evenings we spent in 1 John, we looked at one verse apiece intentionally. Verse 1, then verse 2, building up so that we might understand the outworking of verse 3. Verse 3 takes place if we understand verse 1 and 2. But we need to move forward, and tonight we're going to do it by looking at, it's not a typo in your bulletin, I'm going to look specifically to verse 4, verse 5, skip 6 and 7, and look at the last half of verse 8. But then we're going to come back and we're going to look at those others in um, one of the next times together. So not a typo, and I think you'll understand why, or hopefully it'll make sense to you the way I've tried to... Um, in, a, in a simple way, try and help this be more understandable and how it's delivered. So 1 John chapter 3, um, let's uh, begin with prayer and we'll dive right in tonight in the moments we have left. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us minds so that we can discern, that we can think, um, we can understand. And Lord, we thank you for the Spirit, the Spirit's work, the Holy Spirit in our lives that, that provides understanding, our teacher, um, thank you for the copies of the Word of God that we have before us and the privilege it is to look at these words. They're more than black and white on paper. Um, Paul writes in Timothy that, they're, that they are, are good, they're profitable for all things. Elsewhere in Scripture, we understand that they're powerful, they're living, they're alive. We understand this to mean that it's your Word, it's your will for us. So as we study your will for our lives tonight, I pray that we would do so with humble, submissive spirits. Not looking to just say that was a good study or that was a good lesson or a great sermon tonight and, and feel kind of an emotional spiritual high for a moment, but to seek to, it takes discipline, but apply it to our lives so that we might live and work it out for your glory. All of these things, Lord, I ask humbly in Jesus' name, amen. 1 John chapter 3, um, now, having now covered um, the first three verses of 1 John chapter 3, the apostle wants his readers, he wants us, um, initially his readers there, um, and then us as well as Christians, to grasp the scriptural understanding of sin. We need to work to understand sin, where it comes from, what it does, what is sin, and particularly all of that in focus to how it relates to us as believers. This is what John wants us to know, and certainly God does as well. That's uh, why he, the, the words are included in the scripture here. So it's, it really is only after we have a scripturally sound understanding, I use the word harmoniology, um, that's, that's a big fancy word to say the doctrine of sin, the teaching, the understanding of sin. So it's only after we gain a scriptural understanding of sin that we can really appreciate the provision God has made for our sin problem. You know how that goes in life sometimes? You begin to appreciate something and value something so much more when you understand what it's like to not have it or you understand where it came from and how it was there, so on and so forth. That's, that's kind of the, the idea here. Um, we've, we've, we're well into halfway through um, 1 John, and in this little epistle, I'll remind you, you may have um, taken me up on a challenge several months ago. And really, at the beginning of studying 1 John, I challenged some of you folks to consider reading through the entire epistle of 1 John in one sitting or in one week. Um, five chapters, five days, weekdays, a couple of buffers in there. If you haven't done that yet, 
um, I encourage you to still try and do that, give you a great overview perspective of this little epistle. Those of you that have, I'm excited that you did, and it wouldn't hurt to do it again. Uh, but if you read through so that you can see, because we're taking such small bite-sized chunks of 1 John, it's good to go back and look at that all together. But in John's style, uh, different writers in Scripture that God has used, it's unique to see how God allows for their unique personalities and how they write. And in 1 John's way of writing, we see that his style is to interweave his thoughts throughout the epistle. We keep seeing different themes surfacing, and then they go under the surface, and then they surface, and they go back. And you see these themes weave in and out through First John. Um, others have referred to it, the, the regular Baptist press old Sunday school material. Um, I've actually borrowed some of the ways to divide up our studies from an old curriculum from RBP. And I think one of the titles, I can't remember the author was, um, First John, you've heard of it as, as a tapestry, Right? The way that you see the, the, the threads woven together and, and, and what's made to be so beautiful. So, chapter 2, if you look at that and remember a little bit, chapter 2 ended with a warning. Remember? In, in verse 26 of chapter 2, there was a warning concerning them that seduce you. We were warned and cautioned. And this warning was repeated in chapter 3. You haven't, we haven't been there yet. But in verse 7, there's also a warning there again. Let no man deceive you, uh, chapter 3. And then this, this deceive, really, in verse 7 of chapter 3 that we're going to look at, this deceive um, and seduce are really the, the same Greek word. R- remember I explained um, some time back, and I explained to you that the, ant- the Antichrist's false teachers not the Antichrist, but Antichrist, those who are false teachers, were teaching that knowledge was superior to moral um, virtue, that, that we weren't really sinning if it was in a spiritual and a mental decision type of an idea. It was a false teaching. It was what the Gnostics were teaching. And their ethical values were low. And because of that false teaching, that, that, that uh, perverted way of thinking, uh, the result was that their followers did not attempt to practice a godly life. That's really what they were selling, is, is ungodly living with an excuse for it, um, unrighteous living. So these false teachers held that the sins done in the body were inconsequential. Things we did in the flesh, it didn't matter, because what really mattered was the spiritual things in the spiritual realm. Um, and it is this false influence that John is writing to so carefully correct in the lives of the believers. So look with me uh, at God's word, and let's discover God's mercy for hopeless man. Mercy is a good thing, isn't it? Especially when we're recipients of mercy. And the best mercy ever is when it's God. So look at, we're going to look at God's mercy and hopeless man, but we're going to look at that in reverse order. Okay, reverse order. God, first of all, I'd like us to see that God wants you to recognize the rebelliousness of sin. God wants us to recognize that. John, too. So when John's writing here in our text this evening, we see that he is wanting us, he desires us, because God does, for us to recognize and see the rebelliousness of sin. 
We shouldn't look at sin as a light matter. We shouldn't be cavalier or frivolous with how we treat and study and observe and recognize sin. We are to recognize its egregious rebellion against God. Okay, look at verse 4 with me, please. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law. There's a, there's a great helpful definition of what sin is in verse 4 of this chapter. If you were to do a comparison, compare and contrast here, in, in chapter 2 and verse 29, as well as chapter 3 and verse 7, that comparison will reveal that in chapter 3, John is returning to a subject that he had begun earlier. This is this, this, this um, uh, literary style that he's using. Eh, well, really, it's his personality, not a literary style. But how he's returning to this theme. John is returning to the subject that began early, namely the subject, the righteous nature of Christ and the righteous practice of believers. John wants us to understand these things and this rebelliousness of sin. So the mention of Christ's purity and the necessity of the believer's purity, that's in verse 3 of chapter 3, the necessity of the believer's purity, prompted John to now define what impurity is. It's good to define terms. It's helpful, especially when we're studying the Scriptures together. And so John helps us with that. He helps us understand what actually is sin. Let's really understand and define this yucky subject of sin. These next few verses, uh, verses 4 through 10, we're going to look at probably in three weeks. Tonight being one, and then two more weeks, and we'll complete these verses. Is my plan anyway, and it's just man's plan. We'll see how that works. Uh, but in these verses, we'll see a discussion of why a believer should purify himself and why we as believers, the reasoning why we as believers should not sin. And so to begin that, let's define, as John is defining for us, what sin really is. I've kind of broken it up this way. Understanding, number one, tonight, God wants you to recognize the rebelliousness of sin in order to do that, we need to call it what it is. We live in a culture that doesn't want to call anything sin or wrong. We live in a postmodern world that in a very selfishly narcissistic way, mankind has tried to convince himself and others that truth is relative, that there is no objective truth, that there is nothing really wrong. It's circumstantial pressures on the outside of life that causes one to respond in a way that cannot be controlled. Welcome to our world we live in. This is seen very clearly in children. This is seen very clearly in my children. <laughs> this was very clearly seen in my childhood, and I work very hard to not let it be seen or practiced in my adulthood either. You know how children will seek to minimize what they have done wrong? You know, the excuses that immediately happen. You can come up with a myriad of illustrations. You know, why did you hit your brother? I didn't. He walked into my fist, you know. Um, why did you trip your sister? I just had to put my foot there when she walked by, you know, or whatever it may be. Um, 
Did you know that what you did was very wrong and it makes daddy sad and more importantly, it makes Jesus sad? Well, I didn't know it was wrong. I told you not to do it two seconds ago. I forgot, you know, whatever it might be. The minimizing the sin. We chuckle. I think we chuckle a whole lot less when we start naming the ways we do this as adults to each other today and to God. I think the point still stands. We need to call sin what it is and not minimize it. And John wants us to be clear in this. So the scriptures define sin this way. We want a definition of good doctrine. We go to the scriptures. And the scriptures define sin exactly as it is in this way. A transgression against holy creator God. That's what sin is. A transgression against holy creator God. God. Scripture says in our text here, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. Committeth and transgresseth. <laughs> A lot of ith going on in the King James. These words, to, to commit or to transgress, are from the same Greek word. These two words here. They come from the bo- both from the same Greek word, which means to um, uh, to do, to make, or to practice. And this is important. This is why I, I, I want to share that with you as I've found in, in reading and studying this, is that it, that is important to understand the definition of the committing and transgressing because it tells us that sin is a definite action. It's not a oops, accidental, I couldn't help it, something happened. I guess if you call it sin, that's good for you, but me, it was just a little hiccup in life. It's a definite action. I was speaking, I think I shared this with you maybe a couple weeks ago. I'm not for certain anymore. Sometimes what I share for illustrations. But I was visiting with a young man that was called into the office before the principal because his son was in trouble. The son was five or six years old, maybe seven years old. And the father sat next to the son, and the principal began to relay what was going wrong. And, and, and uh, the principal was saying that it was a very serious matter because the son pushed another child and spoke angrily to him. And the father turned to his son and said, is this what happened? And he goes, yes, Dad, after he punched me. And the father turned back to the principal and said, you didn't tell me that my son was punched prior to pushing the child, not to justify his pushing. And he says, well, here's the video, and show them CT scan, the, the videos, CTTV a video of it, and indeed his son was punched. And he said, what are you going to do about this other son that was punched? And he said, now at that age, Mr. So-and-so, children are not responsible for their choices. You know that type of mentality, folks? And I say this in all seriousness and sorrow. That mentality does not stop with five- and six-year-olds in secular thinking today, but all through adulthood and society. Mankind is not really responsible for his, circum- for, his, um, for his actions, but circumstantial blame-shifting for the sinful choices that mankind makes. So, furthermore, these words really are in the, or excuse me, they're, they're, these words here that I'm speaking of, the committing and the transgressing, they're in the present tense. That alerts us to something else when we're studying Scripture. So as, as I mention this to you, the fact that they are in the present tense stresses that the action is not just a one-time event, but it's a habitual, continuous action. 
John is pointing to something particularly here. He's not speaking of a, a one sin we can think of somewhere in life. He's talking about uh, a, a, a lifestyle of habitual, continual sinfulness is what he's talking about. Continual sin over and over again. So the phrase is speaking of this continual sin, this practice of sin. And it could be really rightly translated literally this way. Everyone who continually practices sin continually practices lawlessness. That's what John is saying here, in essence. Anyone who continually practices sin is continually practicing violating, again, violating God and living in God's law and, vi- and living a, a, a lawless life. So when John wrote... These things I write unto you that you sin not. Back in chapter 2 and verse 1, speaking to my little children. These things I've written to you that you sin not. He used a different tense for sin. A tense that reflected a, a, a single or a specific act of sin. Different than in our verse here this evening. So John is saying that, that, that sin really... Um, or excuse me, by way of, of contrast, really, what's going on is it to, to uh, 1 John chapter 3, and verse 4, when we're talking, looking at verse 4 for tonight, John is describing a life of sin, a life of lawlessness, a life centered on self and doing what me, myself, and I, the harmful trio, wants to do instead of pleasing God. This is what it means to practice sin. To live a life of lawlessness, transgressing, committing. So we need to call it what it is. Intentional choice, choices to sin. But we also need to, in recognizing the rebelliousness of sin, we need to call it what the Bible calls it. We get a little bit deeper here. John says, for sin is the transgression of the law. Do you see it there? Verse 4, whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law. For sin is the transgression of the law, or lawlessness. This, this phrase here in Scripture, I think also rightly, in a literal way, could be translated, and sin is lawlessness. This is what he's saying. It's one of the same. If you sin... You're living lawlessly. Lawlessness, living, is sinful. It is sin. So John is saying that sin and lawlessness are the same thing. Sin is lawlessness, and lawlessness is sin. Now John is not speaking about the Ten Commandments. He's not talking about the Mosaic Law, but the general principle of divine law and God's order. That which reflects the will and the character of the law. Let's go over to 1 Samuel for a moment and and see this defined very well in the the Old Testament for us. 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. You can join me there. Try and race me there. 1 Samuel chapter 15. 
I'm going to pick it up right in the middle of really a story. I'm not going to take time to try and explain some of the context of what's going on here. But in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 22 and 23, you might be reminded in just a few, the couple verses we're going to read here. Scripture says, And Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey, it, obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. For, here it is, look at verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. See how the, 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 what is not pleasing to the Lord, sinfulness, the Lord is perceived as wickedness, and idolatry. First Samuel 15, 22 and 23 define sin as rebellion and stubbornness in response to the will of God. We need to call it what the Bible calls it. Sinfulness is rebellion to God. Sin is rebellion to God. That's what sin is. So lawlessness is rebellion, insubordination to God. Sin is a failure to meet the righteous standard of God. Romans 3.23 tells us, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Reminds us we are all sin sinners. We all once were fall short of the glory of God prior to salvation. And so, John is telling us that the practice of sin, here's kind of a summation of what he's saying so far, the practice of sin is inconsistent with the spiritual identity of one who is born of God and is called a child of God. A life of continual, habitual sin is uncharacteristic of a born-again believer, is what John is saying. By these things ye shall know him. First John is a wonderful little epistle that so much of it reminds us, gives us the assurance of our salvation. By these acts, by these desires, by these steps of obedience can show and, and, and reveal to us who is really a born-again Believer, John is saying that a life of habitual continued sin, a life of lawlessness against God, reveals an uncharacteristic quality, uh, a quality that's uncharacteristic of a believer. So, God wants you to recognize rebellious, rebelliousness of sin, verse 4 of chapter 3. And so we call it what it is, we call it what the Bible calls it, but we also need to <laughs> cease all perpetuation of sin. We need to cease all manners of continuing in sin. We need to cease. We need to stop this. And verse 4 implies the condemnation of the practice of sin. Elsewhere in this epistle, in 1 John here, <clears throat> as well as throughout the Bible, <clears throat> the practice of sin is explicitly um, uh, uh, denounced. It's, it's, it's spoken against. It's condemned. And the practice of sin is incompatible, not only with the nature of God, but with obedience to His Word. 
habitual continual sin. So the only way the uh, perpetuation of sin can cease, that we can stop sinning continually, is by firstly recognizing the rebellious nature of sin. We need to recognize what the enemy is. We need to recognize what it is we need to stop. That's the first step. And so this is what John is showing us here. It's going to set us up for next week and the week after that. But secondly, tonight, very quickly, we need to see that God also wants you to recognize the reason for the incarnation of Christ. This is the mercy part in our title. Mercy for man's hopelessness. Mankind's hopelessness. So God wants you to recognize a reason for the incarnation. For this, we look at verse 5, and then we'll look at the first part, or the, the last part of, of verse 8. Man is a sinner by nature. This is what God's Word teaches us. We are sinners by nature. The theological terminology is that we are totally and completely depraved. We are totally depraved so that we can do nothing to make ourselves spiritually acceptable to God. Nothing in our own might and our own power by the, um, by the grace of God, obviously. But there's nothing we can do. And man is actually destined to live according to his fallen nature and is doomed to um, evil living with a, uh, a righteous and holy judgment of hell as a result. Man is utterly helpless in and of ourselves. This is what total depravity means. But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, provided for helpless man. God, in his <clears throat> abundantly rich mercy, provided grace helpless man. He sent his own son to redeem man from the penalty of sin. That's Jesus Christ. And through him, God provided even victory over sin. Victory now in our living over sin. So God wants you to recognize the reason for the incarnation of Christ, the, the coming and coming in flesh to earth of Christ. What's the reason? Well, Christ came to take away the sins of the world. Christ came to take away our sins. Verse 5 says, And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins, and in him is no sin. Not us. We're sinners. We're depraved. We have a lawlessness about us, a nature that way. But he... Christ was made sin for though for even though he was sinless. So in verse 5 is a reference to the incarnation, as in chapter 1 and verse 2. You remember? For this life was manifested that we have seen it, and bear witness and show you that of eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Speaking of the incarnation of Christ in verse 2 of chapter 1. Now in verse 3, and, or excuse me, chapter 3 in verse 5, again, the incarnation of Christ is pulled into view. And we see this, the sinless of Him, the purpose of Christ's first coming, to take away our sins. 
Christ came to take away our sins. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, the Apostle Paul writes this, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Perfection. Excellence. No sin in him at all. That we might be made the righteousness of God in him. If Christ was not sinless, if, think about this for a moment. If Jesus Christ was not sinless, then he would not have been able to die for the sins of the world. Because it took the sinless Lamb of God, a perfect sacrifice, to pay for the sins of the world. This is a very important doctrine you must understand and get correct. Not only did Paul talk about Christ's substitutionary death for us, him being a substitute for us who were um, uh, um, found guilty and needed to pay for our sin, but Christ being our substitute for our judgment, also in his sinlessness, he who knew no sin, it is only because of Christ's sinlessness that he can be our sacrifice. I'm very clear on that. I want to be emphatic on that. So John and Paul and elsewhere in the New Testament, Isaiah, the Old Testament, also reminds us of. Under the Mosaic system, only it, it is only a perfect lamb was acceptable as a sacrifice for sin. The perfect, the best, without, without any um, uh, broken leg or a, a blemish or spot on it or an infected eye or a cut in the ear or whatever it might be, infected hoof. No, it had to be a perfect lamb. You might note these passages now. We don't have time to turn there, but the author of Hebrews in chapter 4 and verse 15 speaks of this. Hebrews 4.15, a teaching text on the sinlessness of Christ. Also, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 22, 23, and 24. 1 Peter 2, 22 through 24. And these passages assure us that Christ met this righteousness, this righteous requirement of God. This is what God required. Jesus, his son, Christ, the son of God, met the requirement that God required. Because he is righteous, not only can he take our, 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 um, our sin upon him, but he can transfer, or the, the theological term would be, he can impute his righteousness to us. So we are recipients of his righteousness. Only because he is sinless. So this is important because the sinlessness of Christ assures us of the efficacy of his sacrificial work. The effectual work of Christ. This is a great assurance, folks. When we understand what sin is, the rebelliousness of God, and we understand that Christ is perfect and without sin, and he's the one that provided as the perfect sinless lamb for our redemption, for our justification, imputing to us righteousness as we turn to him in repentance and faith. It also provides an example for us to follow because he is righteous. Because of the fact that we understand Jesus is righteous as we study of him, we ought to be righteous too. We ought to desire and out of love respond to him in righteous living in our lives. 
If we look at him as our pattern, we cannot practice sin. If we try to repeat him as our pattern, that's Christ, then we cannot practice sin. We cannot live contrary to the very nature of Christ in which we set before us as our pattern. So God wants you to recognize the reason for the incarnation of Christ. Firstly, Christ came to take away our sins. Then lastly, tonight, Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. I was hoping for an amen on that one. I heard one. Surely, thank you. We got an amen. Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. This is a joy for us. Look at the last part of verse 8 with me, please. For the purpose of the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You see, I didn't make it up. It's what John is saying here. The purpose of one of the purposes of Christ's coming is to save the lost and destroy the works of the devil. See, the devil was the first created being to rebel against God. Do you remember? From Sunday school we learn, from scriptures we learn and we're taught, it was the devil. That's what the Bible says. Isaiah 14, 14 actually records the very words of the devil. And he says, I will be like the most high in reference to God. Pridefulness. He, he, <laughs> he has continued in his sin from that time on till now. Satan, the devil. But he's already a defeated foe. Satan's already defeated. He's already defeated. He knows the end to come. We know the end to come, and God knew the end to come before any one of us knew <laughs> that there was an end to come. The devil's being defeated. Already he is condemned. In the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and verse 31, I'm reminded of this. Let me rapid fire give you a couple of texts. So those of you that are writing, get ready, clear some space. Consider the scriptural fate of the devil. Let me encourage you this way by what the scripture says about the fate of this foe, the devil. Number one, and here's just several of them, he will be confined to the bottomless pit during the millennium. Confined the bottomless pit during the millennium. And that's found in Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3. Also, secondly, he will be released briefly after the millennium, and then he will be cast into the lake of fire, according to Revelation chapter 20, verses 7 through 10. Number three, the lake of fire is. Listen to this. Matthew 25, 41 tells us it is prepared for the devil and his angels. This is the doom of the devil. Christ has come to destroy. And also, number four, Christ is more powerful than the devil. He is more powerful than Satan. Such a sweet joy to have this conversation with my children or other children. I teach in Sunday school. He's teach twos and threes, all ages, really. You teach with children. And you get to a point in time in teaching young people the truth of the word of God, and maybe some of you have been there, and they begin to start comparing. Well, you got Satan, and you have God, and they understand a little bit of the pull of temptation and sin, whether they articulate it or not. And what a joy it is to really explain to them that God is far greater than Satan. Christ has come to take away our sins, but he's come to destroy the works of the devil. And it is because of Christ's redemptive work that all this will be accomplished. And his victory over the enemy, Satan, is 
assured because the Bible says so. So the reason for the incarnation of Christ was that he would take away our sins, take away our sins, your sins, and that he would also destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that encouraging? The mercy for hopeless man. So we wrap up and in these things, you're closing your Bibles, and we're getting ready to pray and sing here in a moment. I want you to remember that God wants you to know that to continue in habitual, a habitual lifestyle of sinfulness, <clears throat> to continue to sin, says that that lifestyle says, I'm a follower of a loser. <laughs> Think of that for a moment. It's, it's a sad rule. I don't mean to make too much of a jest out of this, but to continue to live a habitual life means that you are choosing to live a life in rebellion, and rebellion is a life that's against God. A life that's against God is for Satan, and Satan is a loser that Christ has come to conquer. So to live a life that continues a habitual life of sin is saying I'm following a loser. Persistent sin is inconsistent with the purpose of of Christ's coming. And so John is writing to teach us we do not need to fear when Christ can overpower any foe. We do not need to fear a God and, and our judgment when in His grace and mercy He's provided the incarnation of Christ to take care of these things. Remember the purpose of Christ's coming. Remember these purposes. And I truly believe, as I believe John believed as well, it will help you prevent the practice of sin. Let's pray. Father, with our heads bowed this evening, the end of a, of a long day, a good day, your day. Um, Lord, we spent some time studying your word. And these are some heavy things, really. Topics that are not <clears throat> enjoyable, they're not popular. Um, words were used tonight that are biblical, but they're not common vernacular of the postmodern world that we live in. But Lord, nevertheless, we turn to Scripture and we need to understand, we need to get the doctrine of sin right. And I really do believe, Lord, as a congregation, as believers, you know, to begin to understand and rightly think about sin, it increases our joy and thankfulness for your mercy. Oh God, we cannot understand the miraculous reasoning behind your love being so great for your creation that even though we were shaking our fist in rebellion at you and our sinful lawlessness, you sent your Son to cure us of our sin. Dear Lord in heaven, thank you for your mercy when you provided for the hopeless, depraved mankind. In Jesus' name, amen.